right, we're still here with George Mason University. We are talking to Dr. Mara Simon today. Uh, she's an assistant professor at the Cradle of Physical Education, which is Springfield College. Um, I went to school with Mara at Teachers College, so we are uh, having a little bit of a Teachers College reunion here. So here we go with a new episode of Playing with Research in Health and Physical Education. And the article we're highlighting today is titled, Putting Blinders On. Ethnic minority female PE teachers' identity struggles negotiating racialized discourses, uh, which was recently published in the Journal of Teaching and Physical Education. So, Mara, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's always great to catch up with another Teachers College alum, and also you're my friend, so this is fun to do. Um, And I want to just take a quick second to really express my gratitude to my co-author and my former dissertation advisor, Dr. Laura Azarito, because she really helped me with this article and it was very, her like guidance was really invaluable. So thank you, Laura. Yeah. And I'm, I'm happy to have you on because I've kind of been uh, following this process throughout for, for years to see this now get published in a really good journal. So congratulations. Um, thank you. So let's get started. Um, You make a really strong case in your paper that ethnic minority teachers face multiple challenges working in predominantly white schools. Um, Now, we tend to talk a lot about the experiences of white teachers in racially, ethnically diverse schools. So why don't minority teachers working in predominantly white schools get as much of the attention? Um, I think that it's because they don't hardly exist. I mean, this is like hyperbole, of course, but the reality is that teaching is an overwhelmingly white profession. So when you look at statistics from, you know, say National Center for Education Statistics or the National Education Association's websites, you can see that our current teacher demographics are like approximately 80 to 82 percent white and female. Um, And so like that number in and of itself is pretty incredible. But I find even more telling the fact that, like, this number has remained almost essentially unchanged for the last, like, three or four decades. Um, And so teaching really has been widely established as a white profession for a long time. Really, if we look at sort of the history of this, back to, like, mishandled desegregation efforts from the Brown versus Board of Education ruling in 1954. So... I think that it's not so much that we don't hear about ethnic minority teachers. Um, It's just that there truly are not very many of them. And then on top of that, like the demographics really indicate that um, we're seeing like rising rates of school segregation in general and ethnic minority teachers really tend to be concentrated in schools which have higher rates of ethnic minority students. Um, So, there really just aren't very many minority teachers in predominantly white schools. Yeah, and it's it's interesting in the current political climate too. Talking about school segregation too, um, it is you you uh, hit on a really important topic. Um, so your study um, is framed using both critical whiteness studies and critical race theory. Can you give us just like a brief overview? of both and explain why you selected those two uh, approaches for the study? 
Yes, and I will try to be as brief as possible. So we're going to start with critical race theory, which um, in essence, critical race theory, you know, takes up this position that race is just always a present and salient feature within society and that we are structured in a very clear racial hierarchy from whitest to darkest. And so within this racialized hierarchy, those at the top, i.e. whites, have the most power, while those at the bottom have the least amounts of power. And since power is a determinant of legitimacy, those in power, i.e. whites, get to say what is important, what matters, what is true, and who has the authority to determine what is true. So critical race theory is really trying to, like, um, you know, make visible all of these invisible power relations going on, which serve to subordinate ethnic minority populations. Um, now, critical race theory typically focuses on the oppression and corresponding emancipation of ethnic minorities, which is, you know, obviously crucial and probably the most important element towards, say, equitable school context within the U.S., but um, there's another element to this racialized hierarchy, which is that of whiteness and how it is often invisible, but also quite pervasive in its legitimations of power. So, you know, from critical race theory comes this idea of critical whiteness studies, which aims to destabilize discourses of whiteness, which, you know, normalize and universalize the white experience. Um, which then inherently marginalizes and delegitimizes de ethnic minority experiences. So in a sense, we've got critical race theory, which focuses on the oppression of ethnic minorities, and then we've got critical whiteness studies, which tries to make visible the invisible ways in which whiteness, which if you remember equals power, maintains its power, but also simultaneously denies its role in maintaining this power. So those are like this more theoretical um, explanations, but I'm going to try and apply particularly critical whiteness studies a little bit more coming up. So hopefully if that didn't make sense, um, the sort of direct applications might help listeners understand it better. No, and I think you did a really good job summarizing that. I mean, obviously there's so much more to both critical race theory and whiteness studies. So um, just to give an understanding of how this is, uh, this is framed is great. Now, in your, uh, in your article, you do a really good job explaining how whiteness is entrenched within the public school system, kind of what you talked about a little bit earlier with, um, with how it's reflected in the teachers. Um, can you talk us through a little bit about what this looks like from the historical perspective? Why do we continue to have these issues even today? Sure. And I, I'm really glad you asked this question because as I've, you know, continued my journey into this topic, um, I'm starting to really recognize just how important understanding and knowing the history of our educational system is in recognizing like current, the current landscape of education from a race perspective. So I think it's, it is really, really vital that we know what's going on and what happened previously. So, uh, you know, as I talked about or alluded to, um, education in the U.S. has a really long and shameful history with upholding white supremacy through both de jure and de facto policies. So de jure is like, 
you know, through legislation, like legitimized ways and de facto or sort of invisible, like not articulated, but still quite um, impactful. And so through both de jour and de facto policies, you know, we see the establishment of whiteness as the center and standard from which all students are evaluated. So if we go all the way back to the Brown versus Board of Education ruling in 1954, like most of us are familiar with that, right? It's included in U.S. history books, and it's like really widely heralded as this pinnacle of the civil rights movement. And so like this is important because it marks a shift from de jour segregation and and really like the acceptability of of separate and really not equal educational access for white students versus ethnic minority students. And so post-1954 and then the subsequent Brown II rulings in 1955, um, it suddenly became like unacceptable to have these du jour, um, you know, policies which held white supremacy. So, but that doesn't make people automatically less racist. It just meant that politicians, administrators, you know, district leaders had to find other ways of um, maintaining, you know, segregation and whiteness. So we see like this movement towards de facto or like implicit segregation. And this is almost worse because it's really hard to identify because of this sort of like invisible normality of whiteness. Um, And so like I just find the history of education in post-Brown America to be like jaw-dropping in how racist it is. Like, for example, in the South, right, we had this huge number of private schools that were opened directly in response to desegregation efforts. Um, And like these schools were created specifically for the purpose of keeping white students away from black students. These schools received federal funding for decades um, and they still operate today. Like, these schools are still in existence today. Right. Um, and obviously, like, on their websites, you're not going to find, you know, them addressing issues of race. But, like, the student demographics of these private schools, which are over 95% white, send a very clear message about who is welcome in them. And so, like, this is an example of de facto school segregation where it's like, okay, if we are forced to go into schools with ethnic minority students, we're just going to create our own schools and we're going to remove ourselves from public schools altogether. Um, And so it's very difficult to identify because, right, like if we see a law that states black and white students must be housed in separate schools, we can be like, hey, that's racist. But if you see just a private school, it's like, well, unless you know that it stemmed from directly from the Brown versus Board of Ed rulings, like you might just be like, well, yeah, private schools, like, sure, you know, okay, alternative education path, like, it's it's really hard to name it as a, a form of um, white supremacy. Yeah, and um, you bring up. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, you bring up a really good point in in differentiating between the two, and I think. You know, it's not necessarily specific to the U.S. context, but in the U.S. context, this type of racism is very different than it would be in in other countries. Um, Yeah. So in your literature review, like bringing this back into the physical education world, you have a quote in there. 
physical education literature has problematized how programs traditionally have enacted colorblind perspectives by arguing that this discourse serves to reinforce whiteness as the standard from which community norms are upheld. Can you walk us through what you meant by that and the implications it has for this specific study that you did? Yes. So um, I think that, you know, colorblindness is a really important topic um, in trying to understand how whiteness is upheld within, you know, PE, for example. And so, you know, many of us, I think, grew up with uh, the privileging of this kind of rhetoric within our educational context. Like, we don't see color, we are all the same, let's focus on our similarities and not our differences. The act of naming race and difference is, is actually akin to racism, right? Those are all sort of embedded with this notion of color blindness. Um, and so, you know, color blindness might seem like a really positive, you know, albeit perhaps altruistic approach to race, but what color blindness is, is an approach to race that, that is white. Because what happens if you are of color? So if we are saying in our schools, you know, and, and in, say, our PE programs, like we're all the same, I don't see color, we're not going to acknowledge race, but you are racialized, then how do you fit in within in this context in PE? Like, you know, ethnic minority students know that they're black or they're Latinx or they're Asian, but if their teachers are denying their colored identities, then all this does is reinforce whiteness as the standard for normalcy. Um, and so I have this sort of silly example or frivolous, I guess, example in the, in the article about how, um, which illustrates this point, I think, that like if you were to ask a U.S.-born white student what dessert um, traditionally accompanies Thanksgiving dinner, they, you know, I'd probably hear the response, pumpkin pie. But for black students, Thanksgiving dessert is often sweet potato pie. But color blindness might take up the position that, like, we all eat pumpkin pie happily together on Thanksgiving without acknowledging that this is not a reality for other groups. So I think that's, like, helps illustrate the danger of a colorblind perspective, which proclaims, like, this universality of white experiences, and then that denies or minimizes ethnic minority experiences, particularly in school and in PE. And, and I think it's important to note that you know, it's a it's a changing landscape in education as well. So if you went to school in the 1980s, 90s, even some places early 2000s, you were taught to be colorblind. Yeah, like, I remember going. I, that to is school. still. Yeah, and so understanding and kind of taking a step back, and you know, through conversations like you and I are having, it's really important to kind of understand. Hey. Things, things have changed. We, we're looking at things differently. Yeah. And yeah, there are a ton of places that would teach you that colorblindness is the way to do it. And it's still, you know, in general discourse in, you know, wherever you go. So yeah, um, definitely. And I was thinking, you know, so from that, like, what does that mean for PE, right? Because mm -hmm. I know we're we're trying to focus. And so like my, this study focused on the identities of, of ethnic minority PE teachers, PE similar to, you know, education in general, like is overwhelmingly white in terms of its teacher 
population. Um, and, um, you know, these teachers who are minoritized within their white schools, they really struggled with this idea of color blindness because not only did they want to like assimilate into their white context, they didn't want to be singled out, um, but they often were highlighted, you know, just by being minoritized against a white backdrop. And so, um, you know, the, for me, a huge implication is the need for the creation, like you're saying, of greater awareness about the problems of color blindness and about racial inequity within PE teacher education, because that's like that, that's the linchpin in the teacher pipeline, particularly for PE teachers. And that PE is a discipline is not going to start to, um, you know, enact social justice and critical pedagogies if we continue to reproduce white mainstream norms about teaching and learning and PE. Yeah. So what was the specific purpose of, this study that um, that you published? Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I wanted to understand the embodied identities of ethnic minority female PE teachers who are located in predominantly white schools. Um, and that is like, I wanted to know how the teachers understood themselves against a framework of whiteness and how they were able to reconcile their sense of self in this con- context. Um, when like constantly bombarded with messages of whiteness as normal. And so um, this paper was a part of my dissertation study and it was born from my own personal orientation towards social justice work. And there was a story that I share um, frequently and I'll share it very quickly here again that sort of sparked uh, the, the, the particular um, parameters of the research. And so like one of my first years, my very first year as a teacher, I was in a predominantly white elite private school in New York City, and I had a coworker who identified as black. And, um, you know, I, I thought the school was great. I was like really enjoying myself. I thought like everything's going well. And maybe like a month and a half in, my coworker, I'll call her Sasha, like she told me that she had had this very upsetting meeting with the school administrators and she'd been put on probation um, for like reasons she couldn't really even fully understand. And that sort of sparked something in me because when I watched her teach and I had done a lot of observations, I was like, she's a great teacher. She's committed to the field. She does like things that I want to see. You know, she has an intro, she has a conclusion. She's not, you know, reproducing this like sport based activity model that we see she has great rapport with the students. And, you know, ultimately what sort of came out of that was, was that, like, they didn't like the way she communicated with her students. And really it was, like, an excellent example, not excellent because it was horrible for her, but, like, a, a very clear example of cultural discordancy that this black teacher in a white school had a different style of communication that, that went against these norms of whiteness, and she was penalized for it. Um, and she really like never felt comfortable again in the school and she ended up leaving the next year. So we can see like in that arc of the narrative, how damaging these discourses of whiteness can be on minoritized teachers. And that like, you know, when you are just enduring over and over and over again, assaults on your sense of self, how can you, how can you be a teacher? How can you, you know, communicate with your students towards learning objectives when all you can, you know, 
sort of feel are is this perhaps nervousness or identity tension about your place in the school right and even coming from two totally different backgrounds of you experiencing the same school and you're thinking hey everything's great and I really enjoy myself and not you know not seeing that so I think I think that's why this paper is so great because it gives this kind of narrative that's that's different than what we've typically seen in um, in teaching and physical education and the yeah. way you did this you used uh, visual narrative methodology can you just briefly explain uh, what that is and discuss how it might be a little dip- different than what like traditional forms of qualitative research would be where you just go in observe or you know do interviews or collect um, artifacts sure so this me- specific methodology that I use draws from narrative and visual lines of, of research and so the idea is like narrative research or privileging the stories people tell as valid forms of data and which like epistemologically approaches stories as imbued with like these underlying meanings. Um, as in like if you ask a participant a question within the context of an interview and they tell you a story in response, that story then holds weight and meaning to them, which is why they're sharing it with you as the researcher. Um, and visual methods in general, right, we're aiming to move beyond traditional verbal forms of qualitative data and include tactical representation of verbal text. And so there's like many different ways to enact visual methodology um, from having participants create visual text as part of the research to analyzing, say, media texts and images for discursive meanings, having participants bring in existing visuals to discuss um, and so the technique that I used for the research is called photo elicitation, where I ask participants to like either create new images or bring in existing images, which they felt represented themselves as ethnic minority female PE teachers in predominantly white schools. And so then in the second interview, they shared the images they chose or created, and, and we discussed the meaning together so that I could like hear the stories that surrounded the images, but also physically see the images and ask them questions about the characters, um, you know, to really develop like a more comprehensive narrative. All right. So um, in the results section of the paper, um, you break this down into two sections and you have two separate titles for the section. So one is putting blinders on enacting discourses of colorblindness and whiteness. And then the second one is uh, titled, There's Not a Whole Lot of Me Floating Around, Tensions of Invisibility and Hypervisibility. So let's start with the discussion of the first. What did you find related to putting blinders on, and what are the implications for teaching and teacher education? So this first theme um, really aims to demonstrate how participants view themselves through a lens of whiteness and took up the discourses that reflected were reflected in their white schools, like norms and values. And like essentially the participants like express these colorblind ways of, of being in an attempt to assimilate into the white schools. Um, and so even though like they stood out as ethnic minorities in their schools, they really did not want to address or identify in this way. And instead, like, would deny their racialized identities, saying things like, I don't really identify as Asian, 
or I forget what color I am sometimes, right? Those are direct quotes from participants. And so what I tried to tease out was these um, sort of underlying notions embedded within color blindness that included like meritocracy, colonization, and neoliberalism, um, all of which, you know, have been identified in existing literature as upholding whiteness. And so really, essentially, this section details how participants had to, in some ways, deny their minoritized identities because they were forced into a framework of whiteness. And so, you know, for me, the biggest implication of this section is the need for spaces within physical education, you know, as ethnic minorities experience school first as you know, students in PE and then pre-service PE teachers and then finally as teachers themselves, we need to find ways to decenter whiteness and address the potential for identity struggles, which ethnic minorities who pursue teaching will almost certainly endure. And so I think this section illustrates how damaging the idea that teaching as a white profession is to those who choose to become teachers and yet are not white and why we're seeing higher rates of attrition um, you know, from the profession and lower rates of success within teacher certification programs and certification exams by ethnic minorities. Yeah, I think I think you bring in a lot of insightful things there. And one thing that we haven't, you know, touched on, and we may get to this is, you know, we talked about teaching as being a white profession, like dominated by white females, typically. And I think, you know, it's, it's one of these kind of more obvious things of how diverse our student body is becoming. And we haven't really yeah. uh, discussed that because this is um, kind of the reverse. So you're looking at a predominantly white institution and the teacher of color teaching there. But, you know, you look at, you know, a lot of a lot of states in the U.S. are becoming increasingly diverse and we're still not able to recruit that diverse teaching faculty. And I think that's the same across universities as well. And there have been papers published in our field in physical education and kinesiology that show that we're not having a lot of success uh, recruiting a diverse faculty. Um, but let's, let's move on to that second section, which focused on mm -hmm. there's not a whole lot of me floating around. Talk us through that a little and what it meant in the context of your study. Sure. So this section demonstrates um, how participants were really what I call hyper-visibilized as ethnic minorities in a sea of whiteness among students, teachers, and administrators, um, that even though they desired to like align themselves with colorblindness and white discourses and blend in, you know, they really actually couldn't because of their physical self-representations as ethnic minorities. And even more so, they were often like singled out um, because they, you know, they, they physically stood out. And so, like, for example, I had a participant who described how she received really out of the blue an email from her admin team asking her to attend a people of color conference. So taken at face value, this, you know, maybe seems like an e innocent or even supportive action by her white administration. She's an ethnic minority. Here's a conference for teachers, quote unquote, like her. Doesn't she want to go? But what Alicia described was how she didn't want to go for a number of reasons. But once she was asked by the administration, she felt like she had to go. And then when she thought about it, she realized that, 
only ethnic minority teachers were the ones who were asked, which really highlighted her otherness when she really wanted to be considered equal to her white teacher counterparts. Right. So it was an invitation to a conference for her specific field of study. It was, hey, this is a conference for teachers of color. You should go. Right. Like, hey, you're racialized. We're going to send you to this race-based conference. Yeah. Um, without her, you know, it's one thing if she went to them and was like, I want to go to this conference, but for like, because when we think about power imbalances and the structure of a school and what, you know, an ethnic minority experience within a sea of whiteness is like when you have a white administration who holds power with both whiteness and as admin coming to a minoritized teacher saying, we want you to go to this conference on race. Like, it is a very clear message about how they view her and what they think, like, her contributions are. Um, And so, and then finally, the other problem with that is that it puts the onus of responsibility on on addressing issues of race on ethnic minority teachers. Like, if anything, the white teachers are the ones who should probably be going Mm -hmm. to a conference on race, right? And anti-racist pedagogies or social justice issues, like... Ethnic minority teachers have to do a ton of extra sort of invisible mental and emotional labor. Like, it's not fair to then ask them to do even more. Right. So, and I think you kind of allude to this, but what are the very specific implications of that kind of second section to teaching and teacher education in general? Yeah, I mean, really, that to me is is the crux of it, is that when we make issues of race only relevant to ethnic minority teachers then that absolves white schools, administrators, and teachers of their own, like, racist underpinnings without ever actually making any changes to the dominance of whiteness within schools. So to me, it's like this illustration of the pain and identity tensions that teachers felt um, really hits home the idea that teaching and teacher education are, are very clearly places where they were not welcome and where they did not belong. And so in PE, like I feel that we have the potential to recreate our discipline because in some ways we're very lucky and that we're not bound by, um, you know, like criterion or standards-based assessments, that we have the opportunity to, to really rethink our discipline as a space for critical and social justice pedagogies, which therefore, you know, could include and, and perhaps even attract a more diverse teaching population. Like, we have the chance to right this wrong, but can we do it? Right. Yeah, that is a, that is a multi-layered uh, <laughs> issue. So uh, what, are, what are your main takeaways from this, from this study? Um, to me, the main takeaways are that we need greater understanding how ethnic minority teachers like make sense of themselves in relation to race and how they, you know, often have to negotiate racialized inequalities, particularly if they're located in, um, you know, what are typically predominantly white and, and better resourced and better funded schools. Because, you know, when we go back to this idea of school segregation, like we see the intersection of race and poverty in that white schools usually have a higher tax base, they're better funded, and better resourced, contrasting sharply with schools that have high uh, minority populations, which often are underfunded and under-resourced. So, um, 
you know, when we when we have crossovers there, the teachers who are in these white schools, like how we need them there. We're right. The goal is like this equitable, integrated educational experiences for all. But like, is that really realistic if these white schools are just essentially forcing ethnic minority teachers to like fit into their the frameworks of whiteness? Um, and so I, I really want, you know, people to understand how whiteness informed participants' establishment of, like, their norms and, and their sense of self, that they had to, like, take up whiteness in order to be professionally successful, but they were also, like, made hyper-visible hyper because of their racialized identities, right. um, and that they, they really experienced a lot of identity conflict over this negotiations of visibility and invisibility. Yeah. And I think I have to get better at podcasting because I'm like nodding my head the whole time and realizing <laughs> nobody sees that. I'm like, I'm, I'm listening to you the whole time going, yes, like this is exactly what we need to hear. And I'm nodding my head. So uh, maybe not. We'll interpret, we'll interpret yes. your silence yes. as uh, yes. <laughs> agreement. Yes. So recently we had actually now two podcasts uh, about talking to pre-service teachers about race as a white uh, physical education teacher education faculty member. Do we learn anything from the study that could add to that discussion? Well, I like to think so. Um, I think for me from this study, what I can see is that it's so important for white teachers, white teacher educators, white administrators, like people who identify as part of the dominant group who hold power within the teacher pipeline, the entire teacher pipeline, like it's our responsibility to consistently, you know, check ourselves from centering whiteness, to be willing to acknowledge our own racism and biases, and to also actually take the time to do the work regarding understanding the complexities of race and racism in education, as well as look towards enacting anti-racist and culturally relevant pedagogies. And so like that responsibility is on us. Um, and, and the process, you know, takes a lot of time and a lot of reflection and, and a willingness to be vulnerable and to admit when we have made mistakes and to also use our white privilege to take a stand for racial injustice when we identify it, yeah. right? That we, we, we need to stand as allies for our ethnic minority, you know, community members, whether they're students, whether they're pre-service teachers, or whether they're our colleagues, our teachers in the field, our faculty, um, that, like, we have to show that we support them and that we recognize that their experience is, is informed by whiteness and how problematic that is. Yeah, and I think a lot of what you said just there echoes a lot of the conversation we had a few episodes ago with uh, Dr. Lewis Harrison and Langston Clark yeah. about the same uh, same discussion. And I think it should be an ongoing discussion and an open discussion in our field as well as the community in general. But in, in, in Pete, uh, teacher education, you know, like I, I think that that's a discussion that maybe hasn't been as open in the past. Um, you know, we do those in certain ways and I, you know, Jen Walton Fassett and a lot of colleagues all around the world did that review of looking at how social justice is addressed in PEAT programs and 
it's way all over the board. Some places do it really yeah. well. Some pl- places have specific, um, you know, culturally responsive pedagogy and social justice classes. Yeah. And then certain places just have that single class, but it's not, you know, throughout the curriculum. Other places don't have a single class, but it's spread throughout. So, you know, I, I think that's a, a conversation that we're we're meaning to have and you know, and continue really. Yeah. yeah so I agree. one, one last question, is there anything you want to tell the readers about the study kind of like more related to what you learned or the process of doing this kind of research that, you know, they might not get by just reading, uh, reading the article? Yeah. Um, I was thinking about this question cause I thought it was a really good one. And I think, you know, reflecting, um, I think it's really important to know that, like, good intentions do not always equal positive impact, and that power dynamics are everything when engaging in this type of research. So, you know, in my case, I was engaging in a research project about a topic I'm passionate about, but as a white researcher, I had to be very, very careful about how I positioned myself in relation to each participant. And um, I'm certain I made mistakes. Like there are times when I've gone back through the interviews where I like, I'm like, oh, I can't believe I said that or I wish I had responded differently. But but ultimately, I'm willing to be open in, in my own personal growth and the mistakes that I've made and because this area of research is so important. So, you know, I encourage anyone who's interested in, in these issues of race and racism and equity within PE you know, to pursue it, but also be really cognizant of the implicit power dynamics that come from a white investigator doing research with ethnic minority participants. And and I think that that population is very small, right? So, especially in our field. So um, is there a way that people can connect with you on Twitter? We'll, We'll put your um, a faculty bio link in the notes, but is there um, social yeah. media stuff or anything that you'd like to share? Yes, I'm trying to be more active on Twitter. So my handle is at Dr. underscore Mara underscore Simon. Okay. Um, and I would love to have some followers and I would love to engage more on Twitter. Um, I'm still learning. And <laughs> learning we're, the we're both like one year in on Twitter, so... You know, I know. It's an exciting, exciting. exciting new one. <laughs> so, honestly, thank you so much for coming on. We uh, really appreciate your work. It's important work. Um, and we're going to link to your Twitter handle in the notes section and to the, the paper that was just published in JTPE. So, uh, thank you again for coming on. And uh, that's all we got. Thanks. Thank you.